Chapter 24 of Varney the Vampire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Varney the Vampire, Volume 1 by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter 24. It was Charles Holland who now advanced hurriedly to meet the Admiral. The young man's manner was anxious. He was evidently most intent upon knowing what answer could be sent by Sir Francis Varney to his challenge. Uncle, he said, tell me at once, will he meet me? You can talk of particulars afterwards, but now tell me at once if he will meet me. Um, why, as to that, said the Admiral, with a great deal of fidgety hesitation, you see, I can't exactly say. Not say? No, he's a very odd fish. Don't you think he's a very odd fish, Jack Pringle? Aye, aye, sir. There, you hear, Charles, that Jack is of my opinion that your opponent is an odd fish. But, uncle, why trifle with my impatience thus? Have you seen Sir Francis Varney? Uh, seen him? Oh, yes. And what did he say? Uh, why, to tell you the truth, my lad, I advise you not to fight with him at all. Uncle, is, is this like you? This advice from you to compromise my honor after sending a man a challenge. Damn it all, Jack. I don't know how to get out of it, said the admiral. I tell you what it is, Charles, he wants to fight with swords, and what on earth is the use of your engaging with a fellow who has been practicing at his weapon for more than a hundred years? Well, uncle, if anyone had told me that you would be terrified by this Sir Francis Varney into advising me not to fight, I should have had no hesitation whatever in saying such a thing was impossible. I terrified? Why, you advise me not to meet this man even after I've challenged him. Jack, said the Admiral, I can't carry it on, you see. I never could go on with anything that was not as plain as an anchor, and quite straightforward. I must just tell all that has occurred. Aye, aye, sir, the best way. You think so, Jack? I know it is, sir, always asking pardon for having an opinion at all, excepting when it happens to be the same as yours, sir. Hold your tongue, you libelous villain. Now listen to me, Charles. I got up a scheme of my own. Charles gave a groan, for he had a very tolerable appreciation of his uncle's amount of skill in getting up a scheme of any kind of description. "'Now here am I,' continued the Admiral, "'an old hulk, and not fit for use any more. What's the use of me, I should like to know?' "'Well, that's settled. But you are young and hearty, and have a long life before you. Why should you throw away your life upon a lubberly vampire?' "'I begin to perceive now, uncle,' said Charles reproachfully. Why, you, with such apparent readiness, agreed to this duel taking place? Well, I intended to fight the fellow myself. That's the long and short of it, boy. How could you treat me so? No nonsense, Charles. I tell you it was all in the family. I intended to fight him myself. What was the odds whether I slipped my cable with his assistance or in the regular course a little after this? That's the way to argufy the subject. So, as I tell you, I made up my mind to fight him myself. Charles looked despairingly, but said, what was the result? Oh, the result! Damn me, I suppose that's to come. The vagabond won't fight like a Christian. He says he's quite willing to fight anyone that calls him out, provided it's all regular. Well, well, and he, being the party challenged, for he says he never himself challenges anyone, as he is quite tired of it, must have his choice of weapons. He is entitled to that, but it is generally understood nowadays that pistols are the weapons in use among gentlemen for such purposes. Ah, but he won't understand any such thing, I tell you. He will fight with swords. I suppose he is, then, an adept at the use of the sword? He says he is. No doubt, no doubt. 
I cannot blame a man for choosing, when he has the liberty of choice, that weapon in the use of which he most particularly from practice excels. Yes, but if he be one half the swordsman he has had time enough, according to all accounts, to be, what sort of chance have you with him? Do I hear you reasoning thus? Yes, to be sure you do. I have turned wonderfully prudent, you see. So I mean to fight him myself, and mind now you have nothing whatever to do with it. An effort of prudence, that certainly. Well, didn't I say so? Come, come, uncle, this won't do. I have challenged Sir Francis Varney, and I must meet him with any weapon he may, as the challenged party, choose to select. Besides, you are not, I dare say, aware that I am a very good fencer, and probably stand as fair a chance as Varney in a contest with swords. Indeed. Yes, uncle, I could not be so long on the continent as I have been without picking up a good knowledge of the sword, which is so popular all over Germany. <laughs> but only consider this damned fellow is no less than a hundred and fifty years old. I care not. Yes, but I do. Uncle, uncle, I tell you I will fight with him, and if you do not arrange matters for me so I can have the meeting with this man, which I have myself sought, and cannot, even if I wished, now received from with honour, I must seek some other less scrupulous friend to do so. Give me an hour or two to think of it, Charles, said the Admiral. Don't speak to anyone else, but give me a little time. You shall have no cause of complaint. Your honour cannot suffer in my hands. I will wait your leisure, uncle, but remember that such affairs as these, when once broached, had always better be concluded with all convenient dispatch. I know that, boy, I know that. The Admiral walked away, and Charles, who really felt much fretted at the delay which had taken place, returned to the house. He had not been there long, when a lad, who had been temporarily hired during the morning by Henry to answer the gate, brought him a note, saying, A servant, sir, left this for you just now. For me? said Charles as he glanced at the direction. This is strange, for I have no acquaintance about here. Does anyone wait? No, sir. The note was properly directed to him, therefore Charles Holland at once opened it. A glance at the bottom of the page told him that it came from his enemy, Sir Francis Varney, and then he read it with much eagerness. It ran thus. Sir, your uncle, as he stated himself to be, Admiral Bell, was the bearer to me, as I understood him this day, of a challenge from you. Owing to some unaccountable hallucination of intellect, he seemed to imagine that I intended to set myself up as a sort of animated target for anyone to shoot at who might have a fancy to do so. According to this eccentric view of the case, the Admiral had the kindness to offer to fight me first, when, should he not have the good fortune to put me out of the world, you were to try your skill doubtless. I need scarcely say that I object to these family arrangements. You have challenged me, and fancying the offence sufficient, you defy me to mortal combat. If, therefore, I fight with any one at all, it must be with you. You will clearly understand me, sir, that I do not accuse you of being at all privy to this freak of intellect of your uncle's. He, no doubt, alone conceived it with a laudable desire on his part of serving you. If, however, you have any inclination to meet me, do so to-night, in the middle of the park surrounding your own friend's estate. There is a pollard oak growing close to a small pool. You, no doubt, have noticed that spot often. Meet me there, if you please, and any satisfaction you like I will give you, at twelve o'clock this night. Come alone, or you will not see me. It shall be at your own option entirely to convert the meeting to a hostile one or not. You need send me no answer to this. If you are at the place I mention at the time I have named, well and good. 
if you are not i can only if i please imagine that you shrink from a meeting with francis varney charles holland read this letter twice over carefully and then folding it up and placing it in his pocket he said yes i will meet him he may be assured that i do not shrink from francis varney in the name of honor love virtue and heaven i will meet this man and it shall go hard with me but i will this night wring from him the secret of what he really is for the sake of her who is so dear to me for her sake i will meet this man or monster be he what he may it would have been far more prudent had charles informed henry bannerworth or george of his determination to meet the vampire that evening but he did not do so somehow he fancied it would be some reproach against his courage if he did not go and go alone too for he could not help suspecting that from the conduct of his uncle sir francis varney might have got up an opinion inimical to his courage with all the eager excitement of youth there was nothing that arrayed itself to his mind in such melancholy and uncomfortable colours as an imputation upon his courage i will show this vampire if he be such he said that i am not afraid to meet him and alone too at his own hour at midnight even when if his preternatural powers be of more avail to him than at any other time he can attempt if he dare to use them charles resolved upon going armed and with the greatest care he loaded his pistols and placed them aside ready for action when the time should come to set out to meet the vampire at the spot in the park which had been particularly alluded to in his letter this spot was perfectly well known to charles indeed no one could be a single day at bannerworth hall without noticing it so prominent an object that was that pollard oak standing as it did alone with the beautiful green sward all around it near it was the pool which had been mentioned which was in reality a fish-pond and some little distance off commenced the thick plantation among the intricacies of which sir francis varney or the vampire had been supposed to disappear after the revivification of his body at the full of the moon this spot was in view of several of the windows of the house so that if the night should happen to be a very light one and any of the inhabitants of the hall should happen to have the curiosity to look from those particular windows no doubt the meeting between charles holland and the vampire would be seen this however was a contingency which was nothing to charles whatever it might be to sir francis varney and he scarcely at all considered it was worth consideration he felt more happy and comfortable now that everything seemed to be definitely arranged by which he could come to some sort of explanation with that mysterious being who had so effectually as yet succeeded in destroying his peace of mind and his prospects of happiness i will this night force him to declare himself thought charles he shall tell me who and what he really is and by some means i will endeavour to put an end to those frightful persecutions which flora has suffered this was a thought which considerably raised charles's spirits and when he saw flora again which he now did she was surprised to see him so much more easy and composed in his mind which was sufficiently shown by his manner than he had been but so a short time before charles she said what has happened to give such an impetus to your spirits nothing dear flora nothing but i have been endeavouring to throw from my mind all gloomy thoughts and to convince myself that in the future you and i dearest may yet be very happy oh charles if i could but think so endeavour flora to think so remember how much our happiness is always in our own power flora and that let fate do her worst so long as we are true to each other we have a recompense for every ill oh indeed charles that is a dear recompense and it is well that no force of circumstances short of death itself can divide us true charles true and i am more than ever now bound to look upon you with a loving heart for have you not clung to me generously under circumstances which 
if any at all could have justified you in rending asunder every tie which bound us together, surely would have done so most fully. It is misfortune and distress that tries love, said Charles. It is thus that the touchstone is applied to see if it be current gold indeed, or some base metal by which a superficial glitter imitates it. And your love is indeed true gold. I am unworthy of one glance from those dear eyes if it were not. Oh, if we could but go from here, I think then we might be happy. A strong impression is upon my mind, and has been so for some time, that these persecutions to which I have been subjected are peculiar to this house. Think you so? I do indeed. It may be so, Flora. You are aware that your brother has made up his mind that he will leave the hall. Y yes, yes. And that only in deference to an expressed wish of mine he put off the carrying of such a resolve into effect for a few days. He said so much. Do not, however, imagine, dearest Flora, that those few days will be idly spent. Nay, Charles, I could not imagine so. Believe me, I have some hopes that in that short space of time I shall be able to accomplish yet something which shall have a material effect upon the present posture of affairs. Do not run into danger, Charles. I will not. Believe me, Flora, I have too much appreciation of the value of an existence which is blessed by your love to encounter any needless risks. You say needless. Why do you not confide in me and tell me if the object you have in view to accomplish in the few days' delay is a dangerous one at all? Will you forgive me, Flora, if for once I keep a secret from you? Then, Charles, along with the forgiveness, I must conjure up a host of apprehensions. Nay, why so? You would tell me if there were no circumstances that you feared would fill me with alarm. Now, Flora, your fears and not your judgment condemn me. Surely you cannot think me so utterly heedless as to court danger for danger's sake. No, not so. You pause. And yet you have a sense of what you call honor which I fear would lead you into much risk. I have a sense of honor, but not that foolish one which hangs far more upon the opinions of others than my own. If I thought a course of honor lay before me, and all the world, in a mistaken judgment, were to condemn it as wrong, I would follow it. You are right, Charles, you are right. Let me pray of you to be careful, and at all events to interpose no more delay to our leaving this house than you shall feel convinced is absolutely necessary for some object of real and permanent importance. Charles promised Flora Bannerworth that for her sake, as well as his own, he would be most specially careful of his safety. And then, in such endearing conversation as may well be supposed to be dictated by such hearts as theirs, another happy hour was passed away. They pictured to themselves the scene where first they met, and with a world of interest hanging on every word they uttered, they told each other of the first delightful dawnings of that affection which had sprung up between them, and which they fondly believed neither time nor circumstance would have the power to change or subvert. In the meantime, the old admiral was surprised that Charles was so patient, and had not been to him to demand the result of his deliberation. But he knew not on what rapid pinions time flies, when in the presence of those whom we love, what was an actual hour was but a fleeting minute to Charles Holland, as he sat with Flora's hand clasped in his, and looking at her sweet face. At length the clock striking reminded him of his engagement with his uncle, and he reluctantly rose. "'Dear Flora,' he said, I'm going to sit up to watch tonight, so be under no sort of apprehension. I will feel doubly safe, she said. I have now something to talk to my uncle about, and must leave you. Flora smiled and held out her hand to him. He pressed it to his heart. He knew not what impulse came over him, but for the first time he kissed the cheek of the beautiful girl. With a heightened color she gently repulsed him. 
He took a long lingering look at her as he passed out of the room, and when the door was closed between them, the sensation he experienced was as if some sudden cloud had swept across the face of the sun, dimming to a vast extent its precious luster. A strange heaviness came across his spirits, which before had been so unaccountably raised. He felt as if the shadow of some coming evil was resting on his soul, as if some momentous calamity was preparing for him, which would almost be enough to drive him to madness and irredeemable despair. "'What can this be?' he exclaimed, "'that thus oppressed me. What feeling is this that seems to tell me I shall never again see Flora Bannerworth?' Unconsciously he uttered these words, which betrayed the nature of his worst forebodings. "'Oh, this is weakness,' he then added. "'I must fight out against this. It is mere nervousness. I must not endure it. I will not suffer myself thus to become the sport of imagination. Courage! Courage, Charles Holland! There are real evils enough, without you are adding to them by those of a disordered fancy. Courage! Courage! Courage!' End of chapter 24